This is Rabbi Shammai Engelmeyer, and welcome to Keep the Faith, my usually bi-weekly podcast in which we explore contemporary issues through the prism of Jewish law and tradition. Thanks to everyone who reached out to wish me well when I had to cancel the last podcast. My voice, at least, is not fully recovered, but thanks to the ability to edit audio, I'll get through this one with ease. I'm sure many people think I'm the kvet who stole Hanukkah. I don't dislike Hanukkah. I actually like it very much. I'm just not crazy about people turning it into a Jewish version of Christmas. Sure, I wish that at least as many Jews who celebrate Hanukkah also celebrated Shavuot, but anything that fosters a sense of observance in Jews is welcome. And if giving Hanukkah a Christmas coloring gets some people to celebrate Hanukkah, that's half a battle won. I'm not crazy about it, but I can live with it. What troubles me is not what we're doing to Hanukkah, but how what we're doing to it is distorting what it is we should be celebrating. Hanukkah is about the birth of a concept of religious freedom into the world, a concept we still struggle with over 2,000 years later. As Secretary of State Antony Blinken noted in June in announcing the State Department's latest Global Religious Freedom Report, many governments in 2021 continued to disregard the rights and the faiths of their citizens, and they still do in 2022. Blinken cited numerous areas where religious freedom is abused. Quote, From Jehovah's Witnesses in Russia, Jews in Europe, Baha'is in Iran, Christians in North Korea, Nigeria, and Saudi Arabia, Muslims in Burma and China, Catholics in Nicaragua, and atheists and humanists around the world, no community has been immune from these abuses, unquote. So far in 2022, the State Department said Russia has been doubling down on its religious freedom abuse. Religious freedom is a concept worth celebrating, and it's worth fighting for here and around the world. By celebrating Hanukkah, we help publicize that fight, provided, of course, that we celebrate it for the right reason. There's more, though, that troubles me, and it does have to do with making Hanukkah look a lot like Christmas. In emulating the other, there's the suggestion that too many of us are uncomfortable with Judaism, that we see Judaism as being primitive, backward, anachronistic, out of touch with enlightened modern thought. It's as if we've lost a sense of pride in Judaism and its place in our lives. We get so hung up on sacrifices and the outwardly weird appearance of such rituals as Talit, Filin, Shabbat, and Tashrut that we not only lose sight of what those rituals really are all about, and therefore what Judaism really has always been all about. We need to polish up this distorted image of Judaism and see it for what it really is and what it always has been, a way of life based on the Torah whose laws were and continue to be the most positive force for good in this world and whose Torah-ordained rituals are designed to keep us focused on that way of life so that we do our part to bring good into this world. You will surely join me in taking pride in the words, all men are created equal. But we ignore the fact that when those words were written, the men who were meant were white men, period. And for most people, 
of the 18th century, it meant white Christian men. Women obviously were not men, so they didn't count, and neither did anyone whose skin wasn't white, who wasn't a white Christian. Even today, women still aren't treated equally, certainly not where salaries or job opportunities are concerned, or even where their own bodies are concerned. And there's still a great deal of discrimination against minorities, which obviously we are one, even if we sometimes forget that. Money talks in America and everywhere else, when a rich person goes up against a poor person in a dispute, the overwhelming advantage is to the rich person. Justice may be blind, but it's very much class conscious. Justice also is all too often race conscious, something we saw a year ago on November 19th in Kenosha, Wisconsin, when a jury found Kyle Rittenhouse not guilty of killing three people with an assault rifle. Think about it. On August 23rd, 2020, a black man named James Blake was shot seven times by police, four times in his back and three times on his side, just because he had a knife in his hand, a knife, not a loaded gun, just because he had a knife in his hand and was trying to get into his car while his children sat in the back seat. He was getting into his car. He wasn't rushing at police with his knife. They still shot him seven times. On the evening of August 25th, there were street demonstrations protesting the shooting. Rittenhouse, a white man, traveled from his home in Illinois to be at the demonstrations, which he didn't approve of, by the way. Strapped to his shoulder was a Smith & Wesson M&P 15 automatic rifle with a 16-inch barrel that was capable of firing 30 rounds of ammunition in seconds. Yet, in the midst of a tense and sometimes violent demonstration over Jacob Blake's shooting, he was able to walk right by police. He walked by police again after he had shot three people and had his hands up to surrender. Police just ignored him. Rittenhouse shot three people, and police did nothing. He traveled back to his home in Illinois that night, which is where he was finally arrested the next day. Anyone want to take bets on how police would have reacted if Rittenhouse had been black? Things were much worse, of course, in the world in which the Torah came to be. In that world, distinctions of all kinds, including class and race, were built into the law. The opposite was deliberately built into Torah law. In Leviticus 19, in Sefer Vayikra 19, it says, quote, You shall not render an unfair decision, do not favor the poor or show deference for the rich, judge your fellow fairly, unquote. In chapter 1 of Sefer Devarim, in Deuteronomy chapter 1, it says, quote, You shall not be partial in judgment. Hear out low and high alike, unquote. The Torah also makes clear in a record 52 times that the stranger is to be treated as equally as a citizen is to be treated. Says Exodus 23, Sefer Shemot chapter 23, quote, you shall not oppress a stranger, unquote. Vayikra 19, Leviticus 19 says, quote, And you shall love the stranger as yourself, unquote. A stranger is a stranger, black, white, Christian, Muslim, Buddhist, male or female. 
the Torah reserves its harshest words for anyone, quote, who subverts the rights of the stranger, the fatherless, and the widow, unquote, as Devarim, Deuteronomy, chapter 27 puts it. That's the Torah's way of defining society's disadvantaged and the disenfranchised, whoever they may be. The Torah emphasizes this in a variety of forms, making it as much a prime directive, so to speak, as its laws about the strangers in our midst. Not even the king or president is above the law, or even above his peers, which included everyone, high-born or low, according to Deuteronomy 17. The king or president also had to use his position the betterment of society without enriching himself. You won't find such laws in ancient Greece, the putative birthplace of democracy, or in ancient Rome, or in the more ancient code of Hammurabi. The laws in each of those codes distinguish between high-born and low, and between citizen and stranger. Only in Israel are such laws found in that world. True, as our prophets kept complaining, Israel's leaders didn't always practice what the Torah preaches. Power indeed corrupts. But at least there was an ideal to strive for that didn't exist anywhere else in that world, and still doesn't exist in so many places, including to some degree the modern state of Israel. Is this what we consider backward? Is this what we find awkward and uncomfortable that we need to adopt the ways of the other to make us feel better? As I've noted around this time every year and around July 4th, the Torah, more than any document that came from Greece or elsewhere, is what influenced American democracy. I've often quoted the religion scholar Dr. John Woodland Welsh, who said the Torah was, quote, nothing short of the underlying fabric upon which American society was founded. It was not a passing fancy in colonial America, unquote. There are numerous examples that I also usually cite, such as the capital laws of New England that were promulgated by the Massachusetts Bay Colony in 1641. In 1655, the New Haven Colony's legislators built this into their code, a code that also shows the influence the Talmud had on these Christian legislators. Quote, The judicial laws of God, as they were delivered by Moses, and as they are offense to the moral law, this is a Talmudic concept, by the way, and as they are offense to the moral law, shall generally bind all offenders till they be branched out into particulars hereafter, unquote. New Haven's Code contained 79 statutes, 38 of which came from our Bible, the Tanakh, and an overwhelming majority of those 38 came just from the Torah. In the courtroom, Torah law zealously guards the rights of the defendant. Deuteronomy 17 gives us trial by jury, the right to confront witnesses, protection against self-incrimination, and the right of appeal. The Torah protects the rights of the laborer. Leviticus 19 commands that the laborer be paid on time. The Shabbat commandment in the so-called Ten Commandments entitles the laborer and everyone else the same day of rest each week, as we're entitled to, and Deuteronomy 24 establishes an individual's right to privacy, among other things. The Torah's disdain for slavery is seen in its laws regarding slaves, including the Shabbat commandment I mentioned. 
People defend slavery because the Torah acknowledges it and even seems to support it. But a closer look at the Torah's laws shows just the opposite, as I've also said at times. Deuteronomy 23, for example, forbids returning runaway slaves to their masters, something the Supreme Court ignored in 1857 in its Dred Scott decision. In Exodus chapter 20, we're told that if a master kills a slave, that's murder. If the master causes physical damage to him or her, that automatically frees the slave. So much for slaves being property, an argument southern slave owners often gave when accused of killing a slave, and one that sometimes won over all white southern juries. Exodus 21 and the Talmudic legislation that derives from it gives women power over their own bodies. We're still fighting about this in the America of 2022, as the overturning of Roe v. Wade earlier this year makes clear. Based on Torah legislation, Judaism created one of the most forward-looking sets of environmental and ecological protection laws, including one that forbids burning fossil fuels with abandon, as the Babylonian Talmud tells us in the tractate known as Shabbat. That law is based on Deuteronomy 20, which forbids destroying anything that has a purpose and is also seen as a law that practically demands recycling. The words on the Liberty Bell are our words, taken from our Torah. Quote, go, proclaim liberty throughout the land to all the inhabitants thereof, unquote. To all the inhabitants, not just the ones who look like us or who think like us or who dress like us or who vote like us. Enjoy Hanukkah beginning Sunday night, but enjoy it for what it is and for why it is. It is the birth of the concept of freedom of religion. And take pride in the Torah whose own much brighter light continues to shine because Hanukkah made that possible. This is Rabbi Shammai Engelinger. I do hope you come back for my next podcast, and I'd like to hear what you have to say about this or my other podcast. Go to www.shamai.org, www.shamai.org, and email me, please. If you don't get the Jewish Standard but want to read my columns, go to the columns page of my website. Shabbat Shalom. Stay healthy. Keep wearing those N95 masks in indoor venues, no matter who tells you otherwise and get fully vaccinated, if you haven't done so as yet, including all the available booster shots. Have a really enjoyable Chag Urim Sameach. Have a really enjoyable Festival of Lights. And above all, stay safe.